Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now let's dive into today's episode. Are you concerned about the mental health of a child in your life? Do you think today's kids aren't getting the skills they need to thrive? Do you worry that kids lack resilience? If you answered yes to any of those questions, stick around. Even if you aren't a parent, I hope that you'll tune in because the information in this episode could be helpful for any child in your life. It's no secret that middle school is a strange time. Today's kids are dealing with not only the usual bizarreness of being a tween, but they're also faced with issues we didn't have to deal with, like social media. And it's tough to know what skills to teach kids to get through today's world. But today I'm talking to Phyllis Fagel. Phyllis is a licensed professional counselor and she works as a middle school counselor. She's also an author and a journalist, and you can find her work in places like The Washington Post and CNN. Her first book was called Middle School Matters. Now she's out with a new book called Middle School Superpowers. It's written for adults, but it's about the 10 key skills kids need to thrive in middle school and beyond. Some of the things Phyllis talks about today are how to teach kids how to be vulnerable, how to help them take healthy risks, and how to teach kids healthy ways to manage anxiety. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Phyllis's strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Phyllis Fagel on the superpowers we should be teaching kids. Phyllis Fagel, welcome to Mentally Stronger. Thank you for having me with you today. So I'm so excited to talk about your newest book, Middle School Superpowers. Uh, had an opportunity to check it out and I thought this is really good and what amazing timing because parents need this book right now more than ever. And I hear so many parents say things like, well, kids are resilient, but they're only resilient if we teach them how. And I feel like your book is exactly what we need to say. All right, well, how do you teach kids how to be resilient? I love the way you talk about resilience because I think there's this misconception that someone's just born with the ability to be resilient and either you're resilient or you're not resilient. And you're so right. It's a set of skills that we have the ability to teach our kids. And tell me, what's it like to be a middle school counselor in the post-pandemic world? Oh my gosh, that's such a huge question. I have been calling these middle schoolers extreme tweens because they're the same middle schoolers, only more so. So everything that makes a middle schooler a middle schooler, the insecurity, the vulnerability, the excitement and desire to change the world, the uh, difficulty they can have assuming positive intent, the oversensitivity that they walk around with, the hardship that they experience when they have to take a risk or risk failure. All of those things are true, just like they've always been true, only about a hundred times more so in the wake of the pandemic. And it's not just the pandemic. It's also everything else going on in society. I know we hear so much about social media and things that 
a lot of parents say, you know, I didn't deal with this as a kid or bullying was different when I was younger than it is now. But then you sprinkle in the pandemic something that we didn't experience as kids and we don't really know uh, how it's going to affect them in the long term. I think so many parents are struggling, which is why I love that your book was written in a really concise way. And it's easy for parents to understand. At the end of the chapters, you give a little breakdown of how to address specific issues. So it's really well written, I think, for a parent who says, I don't even know where to begin. Thank you. I really wanted it to, I think that's the school counselor in me really looking for very practical, easy to implement strategies that not only can parents maybe use in their own lives, but that they can then teach their kids. Absolutely. And I guess the other thing in terms of the pandemic, I hear some parents say like, ah, my kid didn't really care. And I hear other parents say like, kids are so traumatized because they didn't go to school. What are you finding in terms of how kids are coping these days? You know, it's really interesting. And I say this not only as a counselor, but also as the parent of a kid who was sent home with their stuff on March 12th when they were in sixth grade. So I lived having a middle schooler through the pandemic. And I still really remember him coming home and saying, you know, mom, they sent me home with all of my books for the rest of the school year. And I'm thinking that can't be a good thing. And as we know, it wasn't a good thing. And he himself would tell you that he spent the first part of the pandemic when he was home feeling really lonely and feeling really adrift. He was too young to have the skills to connect with friends through a screen. He was completely disconnected from everything that he loved, including his baseball team. And that was hard with a capital H. And something that I always tell parents is that you can't compare kids' experience based on the level of hardship. It has to do with their ability to cope with that hardship. And he had to figure out what he needed to do, just like all of these students and kids that I work with are trying to figure out what they need to do to move forward and to have the most positive middle school experience possible, especially given how sensitive they all are right now. And I like what you said, that it's about their ability to cope. Say a kid doesn't make the basketball team. One kid is like, ah, whatever, I'm just going to join drama or I'll take up band. Another kid might be deeply affected and afraid to try out for something else, or they might start to really look depressed or have, really struggle with it. So I think that's an important point, that it's not just about the thing that happened, but it's about how your kid interprets it, what it means for them, and then their ability to cope with that. Definitely. So I want to take out some specific chapters from your book, because I think not only do they apply to kids, they apply to adults too. The same things that make kids resilient are really important for adults to be resilient too. But as adults, a lot of us struggle to say, well, I struggle with this in my life. So how am I going to now teach this to my kid? So, but your book, I think makes it so much easier. So a couple things I found interesting, uh, the chapter about flexibility and the importance of that, because... Dealing with change is so important, yet so many of us struggle with it. Can you just give us some pointers on how do we help kids become more flexible? So I think that uncertainty and change is hard, as you said, for adults too. And I sometimes think about those studies that show that people would rather, if given a choice, know with certainty that they're going to get a painful electrical shock then have a 50% chance that they're going to get that shock. And job instability or not knowing what's going to happen with you at work is actually more stressful than getting fired, which I think is fascinating. And it makes a lot of sense to me. And so one of the things I always tell kids is first just validate that change is hard. Because whenever something is changing in your life, you know what you're giving up, but you don't know what you're getting. 
And if you're 12 or 13, you don't have any life experience or perspective. You don't have the background that you can lean on to say, you know what, I've been through this before and I can do it again. I tell the story in the book of a boy whose parents had to move around all over the world. And he moved to the United States in the middle of the pandemic. And one of the things he said was that while it was hard, he could tell himself, you know what, I've done this before and I know I can manage it. And that's such a key part of resilience and managing change. And so one thing that we can do as parents is really help our kids think about times they've done hard things, help them have a different self-concept so that as they're going through that change. And then as I talk about in the book, there are so many other things you can do, including having a sense of humor. So I also tell the story about a girl who had to leave my school where she had been going for a long time and go to another school. And she was really nervous. All of the things she had heard about middle school came from either Mean Girls or Diary of a Wimpy Kid. So she was worried that you know she would eat a bad hamburger and throw up in the cafeteria or that she would have no friends and she'd end up having to spend all of her breaks hidden in a bathroom stall. You know, she had this really dire uh, projection of what middle school would be like. And when I checked back in with her the following fall, she started telling me these really funny stories about what had happened to her when she got to the new school. So one of the things that happened is she saw that a girl who had two, um, who had who had broken both of her legs, I think, or both of her arms and had her binder slung around her neck. She had been abandoned in the hallway. Normally she needed somebody to carry her stuff for her so that she could navigate the halls. And so my student talked about how she was late for class because she was helping this girl. And she was sharing all of these funny anecdotes. And when I asked her if she liked the school better than she expected, because it sounded kind of fun in the way she was talking about it, she said, no, it's every bit as bad as I expected in in a lot of different ways, but I do like it. And what's helped me is that I imagine I'm fly on the wall, watching myself, having these crazy experiences. And I think about how I'm going to share them with my friends and share them with my former teachers. So she on her own had figured out that having a sense of humor really helped her navigate that that part, that change in her life. Oh, I love those. So all of those skills you talked about, we know work for adults too, like drawing on your inner strength. You just remember, okay, what, what have I been through before that's been hard? How can I get through this? So I love the idea of teaching that to kids sense of humor and like the story you just told about the girl going to a new school. How many adults have that same fear when you're starting a new job or you're going to a new place and you're imagining all the terrible things that could happen when you walk in the room? So to be able to be, to have that sense of humor and laugh about it. And then I love the fly on a wall idea too. We know that from the research, you get a little psychological distance to get a different perspective on what's going on. It takes a lot of the emotion out of it and you can see things from a different angle. So love those ideas. Another thing that you talked about in the book is vulnerability. And I thought this is interesting because I think so many parents are like, no, I'm trying to teach my kid to be independent right now. So the idea of then raising a kid who asks for help, I think seems a little bit counterintuitive to some parents, but can you talk about why that's so important? So there are a lot of developmental reasons why it's particularly important to emphasize that having vulnerability is a bona fide superpower. First of all, kids in this age group are not great at knowing what's going on in their internal life. They're much less likely than older adolescents to even be able to label the feeling they're having. They're less likely to ask for help. They have a really hard time delineating between the mood fluctuations of puberty and what might constitute anxiety or depression. And not to 
go too far to the negative, but we know that there's been a huge increase in suicide in this age group. And one of the things we know is that while half the time it is due to depression, it is the other half of the time it's unpredictable. It's an act of impulsivity. And a middle schooler can look really happy and joyful one minute and then be really despondent and depressed and morose and withdrawn the next. So we want to make sure that we are teaching them how to ask for help, when to ask for help, and helping them brainstorm who they would ask for help so they can make that decision in advance, not when they're in a crisis. Oh, I like that idea too. In my therapy office, we would often see if they could come up with five adults or older people that they could go to so that, all right, if you're really struggling and it sometimes is mom or dad, but sometimes it's like an aunt or a family friend or a coach at school, just people, who could you talk to if you're really struggling with something? And that was so important. Once kids saw that list, they'd be like, okay, I do have these people I can talk to if I need to. Or I might go to my aunt if I have a question about something specific like sports or an issue with my friends. But I might go to my coach if I had a question about homework or how to deal with a teacher at school too. And when kids could identify those people, it seemed to reduce a lot of their stress. So they were like, oh, okay, I have a plan in place. I love that addition that you have to my strategy, which is to really have them drill down who would they ask for different kinds of problems, which I think is so important too. They don't necessarily know who they're supposed to talk to if they're struggling academically, which might seem really obvious to us as adults, but isn't necessarily obvious to a middle schooler. Right. And for parents to know like, yeah, you're child might say, you know, I can talk to grandma about this, but not you. And to try not to take that personally, right? Yes. And you talked a little while ago about how parents are struggling too. And something that I actually love and appreciate about middle schoolers is that if they sense that their parent isn't at their peak, they're not going to burden them with their problems. So we have to really recognize that they may not talk to us, not because they don't trust us or because they don't think that they can help us, you can help them, but because they just don't want to burden you. That's a good point because kids do pick up on their parents' stress, don't they? I can't tell you how many middle schoolers will come into my therapy office and say, you know, like my, my parents are kind of stressed out lately and the kids might not know exactly why, whether it was work stress or financial stress, but they tended to figure that out like, oh, they've been arguing more lately or they, they stay up really late sometimes or have these private conversations that don't involve me. And sometimes it stressed kids out because they really wanted to know like what's going on. Yes. And they're going to come up with the worst case scenario if you're not at least somewhat transparent with them. So sometimes giving some information is actually helpful for alleviating the kid's distress. I agree because so many parents want to protect their kids. So they're like, we just won't tell them what's going on. But kids overhear whisperings and rumblings and they see changes in behavior. And you're right. They often do go to the absolute worst case scenario. This is the first time in my life when I haven't had a pet. Up until two years ago, I had Jackson, a 19-year-old Himalayan cat, and Fiona, a 17-year-old English Springer Spaniel. Both of them lived on the sailboat and adjusted pretty well to life on the water. I miss them, and I look forward to getting another pet when the time is right. Today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Your pet is part of the family, and you want the best for them no matter what. But vet bills can really add up. That's why you should check out Pet Insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. It's simple. 
Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash stronger. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash stronger. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash stronger. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency, LIM. Do you want to get high-quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? Try ButcherBox. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan, or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com stronger and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com stronger and use code STRONGER to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. What about um, the chapter that you have on healing and how we can help kids learn more about emotions? So that might be the most practical hands-on chapter in the book, what I do in that chapter is really break down my students and my clients' favorite strategies, the things that really work for them. Something that's a little bit different post-pandemic than prior to the pandemic is that I've noticed kids have a lot harder time doing things that are more meditative or mindfulness-oriented. Sitting with their thoughts is harder. Those thoughts are more uncomfortable than they might have been in the past. And instead of activating you know, changing their thoughts, working to activate their parasympathetic nervous system, in other words, to help them calm their body in order to calm their thoughts. So kind of working backwards. And I always explain the science to kids because when they understand the science, it feels real. It feels like this is not another adult lecturing them and telling them how they should feel or what they should do to feel better, which is only going to serve to shut them down. So I really try to give kids practical strategies. And I go through a whole bunch of them in that chapter because of two things. One is obviously you want kids to have coping strategies when they're stressed or distressed, but the even more powerful result of teaching kids these strategies is that they get less stressed in the first place because they feel empowered. They know that if they are experiencing an onslaught of discomfort. There's something they can do about it. They're not just, you know, a passive victim of their emotions. There's something they can do. And simply knowing that they're not powerless is has a healing effect on them. Yeah, I guess two things to say about that. We know that even for adults, if you have an if-then plan, all right, if I go into work tomorrow and I get really nervous trying to talk to my boss, then I will, if you fill in the blank, then I will take three deep breaths or then I'll just say, let's continue this discussion later. As long as you know you have options, we feel better. And then to also know, yeah, there is something I can always control. And for kids, there's so many things out of their control. We tell them so many things to do and when to do it and how to do it. But like they can always control at least their breathing or they can control the the thoughts that run in their head. If they want to talk back to some negative thoughts, that's an option. And so I absolutely agree when we just help kids figure out, well, what is within my control right now? They often feel a lot better instantly. 
And one of the pieces of advice I share is your advice, and I love it, which is you can't control other people or how they're going to behave, but you can be an observer. And if you notice that someone else's fuse isn't as long or your own fuse isn't as long, it's probably not the best time to have that you know, face-to-face confrontation or try to clear the air about something. And sometimes simply understanding how to interact with other people in addition to knowing how to manage their own feelings is really helpful as well. And for parents who say, you know, we've never really talked about feelings, so how do I suddenly start addressing this issue at home? What would you say to them? So it's really why I wrote this book for parents. We know behave, we know that emotions are contagious, and we know that most parents of middle schoolers today were not taught these skills. We didn't grow up, and I speak for myself too, with someone telling us how to challenge our negativity or what we could do if we were feeling like we were overwhelmed by stress. We didn't know things like cognitive offloading just to get ideas out of your head and onto paper. You know, there's so many little things that we just simply weren't taught and we can't teach them to our kids if we don't know them ourselves. And so I'm really hoping that parents will learn alongside their kids and try these strategies too. I think so too. And I think that's one of the coolest things is, yeah, these work for for big kids as well. So if you're 45 years old and you've never really dealt with any of these things, never learned about them, that they work and you can practice them right alongside your kids. I find with emotions, kids will sometimes be like, well, my dad's never scared of anything, or my mom doesn't really struggle with being sad. So I don't know what they do if they felt those feelings. I don't know how they'd cope with them because really the most common emotions kids see is just like happiness or kind of neutral, or they see anger. They know that you lose your temper once in a while. But so often we don't talk about, yeah, I'm really nervous about this thing coming up on Friday. So I'm going to go for a walk to manage my anxiety. Most parents don't have those kinds of conversations with kids. It's true. And parents might even have the wrong external expression of the internal emotion. And that's confusing too. So that parent, maybe there's a, their dad is really stressed about something at work and feeling kind of disappointed about something that didn't go his way, but it comes out as rage or irritability. And that's confusing. And the adult may not even recognize that the feeling doesn't match that external expression. Good point as well. Another chapter in your book, you talk about the force field being a superpower. And we talk so much about boundaries for adults, but you don't really hear it very much about kids and teaching kids how to set boundaries. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. And not to be too gendered, but a lot of that chapter has to do with the way we socialize girls. Uh, Girls in particular have a really hard time saying, you know what, this is too big of a problem for me, or you know what, I'm tired and I need to get off of this text chain and go to sleep. And we spend so much time telling them to be a good friend, to be a good listener, that we often neglect to tell them that you can't give from an empty vessel and you need to make sure that you are sustaining your own well-being. And part of doing that is recognizing when you're out of your realm, recognizing when and how to say no. And I actually go through the steps of how to say no, whether it's uh, an administrator that wants you to sit on a teacher interview panel as the kid interviewer, or whether it's a friend who wants to tell you every single day ad nauseum about the unrequited crush they have, which at least would be an appropriate conversation topic for a middle schooler. But often what kids are telling me is that they have friends who want to share things like cutting or eating disorders or suicidal ideation, and then make them promise not to tell. And those are issues that that child can't, not only can they not help them with those problems, but 
if they don't tell and if they try to help, they're actually getting in the way of them getting the more specialized support they need. And those are tough conversations to have with kids because there's some nuances, right? We want them to speak up, but at appropriate times. If you're in a baseball game and the umpire calls a strike and you don't agree with it, like that's not the best time to speak up and stand up for yourself. But on the other hand, yeah, somebody's getting picked on and you decide, hey, that's not okay. I'm going to stand up for that person. How do you do it? How do you say no to a friend who says, can I cheat off your homework today? Can I just copy your paper? We want them to know there are plenty of times that they can say no and speak up. But it's difficult to explain those nuances of when it's appropriate and when it's not, I think, sometimes. That's such a good point. And sometimes even giving them the language. So, you know, if they have to soften it the first time as they're building up the courage muscle to say no, it might be something like, you know, I can't do that right now. Or, you know, uh, even simply waiting 24 hours before responding, they may very well solve that problem that you didn't want to get in the middle of on their own anyway buys yourself some time. So giving kids those intermediate steps in the language in order to build their ability to set those boundaries. Yeah, sometimes just having a phrase or two that they can rely on. So I like those ideas of being like, I'm going to think about that or I'll get back to you or I'm not sure I have time for that right now. When kids memorize those things and they will, then they know, all right, I'll just throw that out there right now because I don't know what else to say or what else to do. I also tell kids that they can have policies like, you know what, my policy is that I never check my texts after, you know, 9 p.m., whatever they come up with. And if saying no is hard for them, they go back and lean on that policy. They just know that this is something that way they don't get decision fatigue. They're not every single time that they're facing this situation trying to figure out how to solve it. They've already answered that question for themselves in advance. Oh, a policy. That's a that's an interesting one. And speaking of texts and things like phones, How can parents cope with trying to figure all of that out? Social media changes all the time. The rules change. Kids are using apps and so many of them do have phones. And you hear so much advice about don't let your kids be on it too much. But at the same time, during the pandemic, we were asking them to be on their electronics all the time. Any general thoughts for parents who are struggling with how to set rules? Yeah, you know, I think you have to know your child. And your child has to know themselves. And I think one of the best things that we can do as parents, as adults in a middle schooler's life is to help them ask those questions of themselves. Which apps make me feel good? Which ones make me feel lousy when I get off of them? Which ones, when I get going, I can't extricate myself from them. And so it gets in the way of other things. I love, and this is from Lori Santos, who does the Yale Happiness Course. She uses the acronym WWW, which stands for what... Why now? Like, why are you using it? Is it to, um, is it because you're bored or because you're lonely? Uh, what is it for? That's the second W, meaning are you looking up something for school? Are you on there because you're FaceTiming with grandma? Or are you passively scrolling through somebody else's Instagram feed or snaps feeling like a, you completely are excluded? And then the third W is what else? Like, what else could you be doing? with that time? Should you be doing homework? Should you be sleeping? And most of the time, the answer to that second one is yes. None of these kids are getting enough sleep. Oh, interesting. So that that is a big problem that you're seeing? Yes. And when you don't get enough sleep, it just gets in the way of making good decisions in so many other areas of kids' lives. So something else you talk about in your book is about the importance of teaching kids how to take smart risks. But I know a lot of parents are like, no, I'm trying to convince my kid not to do physical stunts or to not take these risks that are, could inherently be somewhat dangerous or that they're impulsive. 
How do we make sure that when kids do take risks, that they're taking smart risks? Well, we want to make sure that they're having opportunities for fun and novelty because they're going to be thrill-seeking. It's part of the phase. So we want to make sure they have opportunities to seek thrills that are safe. That might be something like taking the train downtown by themselves. It could be having being the host and having four people sleep over. If that's not something they typically do, that might be a risk that they would take. And things like trying out for a team or running for student council or speaking up in class for some kids simply making eye contact with someone is a huge risk. And so we want to make sure that we are giving them opportunities to take risks because it's risks are, risk taking is transferable. That still is transferable. So if they are more willing to raise their hand in class, they're probably also going to be more willing to you know, submit that poem they wrote to a contest. Interesting stuff. And we know that like social risks sometimes for some kids are incredibly difficult. It would have been for me in junior high, giving a speech in front of the class was like my worst nightmare. For other kids, they don't, they don't mind the social aspect so much, but then they might not be like say confident in gym class and they might struggle with um, running around in front of other people or playing a sport. And I think a lot of kids, when they don't have that confidence, when they're not taking those risks, they don't come out and say, hey, I'm feeling insecure. What they do is they're avoidant or they come up with excuses. This is why in the school setting, so many kids are often going to the nurse or going to the counselor or wandering the halls. Uh, usually there's some kind of a pattern. I try to track when they're in those different places and I might find out or discover that, oh, it's always during Spanish class or it's always during PE. And once we identify that pattern, we might be the first person to point it out to the kid. They may not even realize themselves what's happening. Right. A lot of stomach aches, headaches, those sorts of things are. And I think sometimes kids really do struggle with stomach aches and headaches, but it's caused by stress or it really stems from having anxiety or something underneath that might be more of a mental health issue. Yeah. And we want to make sure we're giving them ways to take risks in a comfortable way and that we are not assuming they can do more than they're capable of. I think a lot of really well-meaning parents will say, why don't you just call her up and invite her over? You know, she's new. And meanwhile, the kid is thinking, there's about 14 different steps I need to go through before I'll get to the point where I feel comfortable inviting this person over. What are some of the biggest obstacles you see towards kids becoming resilient right now? You know, I think one big obstacle is having adults who can, with calm assurance, say to them, you're going to be okay. And I believe you can acquire the strengths and manage this. I think a lot of the times we protect, we're overprotective in our parenting or overly negative. And we want to make sure we are communicating to kids that we believe that they can do these hard things. We believe they can overcome disappointment and that it, that they can acquire a set of skills that will make it easier for them to do that. Another big barrier right now is that there's so much fear in kids themselves. I have never seen so many kids in private practice who are struggling with things like fire drill anxiety or school shooting anxiety. And some of that is, you know, leftover from the pandemic. We just had this additive stress over time. And some of it is that they truly are growing up in a world that feels less safe and they're subjected 24-7 to social media and news accounts, not necessarily asking for support. And so I'm seeing a lot more anxiety now than I've seen in years past. And I think the divisiveness in society is making it hard as well. Uh, I would agree with all of that. And I'm seeing parents who are anxious. And of course, just what we said before, that 
emotions are contagious and kids know and parents are anxious. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with the news being uh, on so often and the stories on the news are are never good. And so people are feeling distressed because of that and kids are picking up on that. Aside from reading your book, do you have a couple of last tips for parents who say, okay, I really want to raise a resilient kid. I'm not sure where to start. What kinds of things could they start doing? You know, look for those moments of humor. Uh, One of my favorite things to do with my kid is to trade really cute or funny animal videos. It's such a small thing, but really looking for ways to connect that are light and mood lifting, I think is helpful. Uh, Really pointing out any kind of incremental progress. I think, as you said, kids sometimes think, oh, my parent doesn't have any problems or my parent's life was a straight line from seventh grade to success. And so really making sure that we are not only pointing out to our kid like, oh, look how much better you hit that baseball than you did a year ago, especially if they're feeling like inferior to somebody else, comparing themselves to other people and also coping out loud ourselves saying, you know what, right now, I'm feeling really anxious about X, Y, or Z. So here's what I'm going to do. And then circling back to say, and now I feel better. And that really helped or that didn't help. So I'm going to try this other strategy, letting them know that it may not work the first time. And that seems counterintuitive because I know a lot of parents say, I don't want to burden my kids or I don't want to stress them out. But that is a great opportunity to teach them how you're dealing with emotions too. For sure. Well, Phyllis Fagel, thank you so much for being on Mentally Stronger. And we'll link to your book in our show notes. And I hope everybody goes out and picks up a copy of Middle School Superpowers. Thank you for having me on. And anyone who reads the book is going to get to have your advice in there as a bonus too. Oh, amazing. Thanks for including me. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Phyllis's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of her strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, teach your kids how to ask for help. I'm glad that Phyllis mentioned the importance of teaching kids to ask for help. When I was a therapist, I worked with tons of kids over the years. Some of them were there because adults saw changes in their behavior or something that concerned them like their appetite changed or their grades started to slip. But some kids were actually there because they told someone that they were having a hard time. Some of them even asked their parents if they could go to counseling. When we normalize asking for help, kids realize it's not a big deal and we all need help sometimes. And when we talk about mental health on a regular basis, we can normalize that for them too. Just like you might sometimes need to see a doctor for a physical ache or pain, It's healthy to talk to somebody about unemotional pain. And of course, it doesn't always have to be a therapist either. Just having one trusted adult to talk to about issues with friends or something they're worried about can be really helpful. So something you can do is just brainstorm a list of five trusted adults besides you that a child could reach out to if they're having a hard time. It might include anybody from family members to coaches and teachers or maybe some of their friends' parents. Number two, help your child develop their own policies. I've worked with a lot of kids who felt like they needed to blame their parents' rules for certain things. Sometimes that rule didn't even exist. They just made it up. Like one kid used to say, ah, my parents turned my phone off after eight. It actually wasn't true. He just didn't want to feel pressured into texting people all night long. 
He said, sometimes I just want to relax. So I blame my parents for being stricter than they actually are. And that's definitely an okay strategy, but I like that Phyllis encourages kids to develop their own policies and to be upfront about what those policies are. I imagine when a kid tells someone about their policies, it has to be pretty powerful. So I love that idea. Talk to your kids about establishing the policies they want in their lives, and then they don't have to make up an excuse or apologize for those policies. Instead, they can just say, hey, that's my policy. And number three, show them how to develop courage. When kids are afraid of something or they're going through a rough time, our first reaction is often to try to reduce their fear. We want to say something like, oh, it's going to be fine, or you don't have to worry about that. But rather than reduce their fear, it's more helpful to increase their courage. So if your child's scared about an upcoming performance or a test, talk about how to act brave, even if they don't feel brave. Rather than try to talk them out of feeling scared, let them know, hey, it's okay to be scared. Let them know you felt that way. And then help them find ways to be courageous. That might mean taking some deep breaths or talking about their feelings or maybe just challenging themselves to do one hard thing every day. But there are lots of ways that kids can learn to practice being brave. So those are three of Phyllis's strategies that I highly recommend. Teach your kids how to ask for help, encourage your child to set their own policies, and show them how to develop courage. If you want more of Phyllis's tips, check out her book, Middle School Superpowers. It's filled with amazing advice that can help you support your child's mental health during the difficult tween years. If you know someone who could benefit from hearing how to help kids grow mentally stronger, share this episode with them. Simply sharing a link could help someone feel better and grow stronger. Do you want free access to my online course? It's called 10 Mental Strength Exercises That Will Help You Reach Your Greatest Potential. To get your free pass, all you have to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Then send us a screenshot of your review. Our email address is podcast at amymorinlcsw.com. We'll reply with your all-access pass to the course. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to Mentally Stronger. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who may have skipped school a few times when he was in middle school, Nick Valentine. <laughs>